You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. Hear what you've been missing. Audix is proud to introduce the new line of dynamic closed-back headphones designed for audio professionals and audiophiles to deliver the most accurate sound possible. I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Welcome back to Signal to Noise Podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to hit the post on that one, Chris, because I was um, finishing off a mouthful of birthday cake here, and it got right <laughs> down to the wire. A lot of, um, a lot of birthdays lately. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah, somehow it was Joy's birthday, and we ended up with, with multiple cakes, which obviously you don't eat all at once for your own you know, well-being. So I've been like self-rationing on the birthday cake, but I figured I'd take a little shot here before the, before the show started and just got right down under the wire there. So now that I've had my cake, Chris, how was your day? Uh, it's, it's, it's been, it's been good. I'm, I'm stirring things up here on the internet, uh, as I typically do. Stop, don't do that, man. No, 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 enough- no and, and this was a good way. Yeah. I'm, you know, some may or may not know, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project about the history of live sound. I'm not talking too much about it, but so I'm just dabbling out some carrots out there with some stuff as people are biting on it. And then the typical people that bite back, Oh, well this, this happened first. And no, you got this wrong. And it's like, look guys, oh, I, I'm, I'm not claiming facts here. I'm just saying hey i kind of saw this i kind of saw this relax relax so yeah you know and you it, uh you blew out a tire on your car i did that so too you an eventful couple of days yeah it's it's all good it's um it's it's like it's 2020 <laughs> we've got uh another another uh, we're adding to the list of repeat offenders here on the signal noise podcast i didn't do it this week <laughs> oh <laughs> uh previous guests Pro Sound Web contributor, RF guru extraordinaire, Mr. Ike Zimbel is back on the show with us. Ike, welcome back, sir. Hey, welcome. Hi. Hi. Good to well, be back, guys. Yes, it's nice to hear from our northern uh, northern neighbors um, now and again. Yeah, we figured, uh, so everyone else in the country is watching the debate tonight, so we had to get someone from out of the country to, to talk to us tonight. No, I'm just kidding. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, well, well, good. I'm glad I could keep you guys keep you guys off the streets and, and um, you know, That's doing right. something useful and productive. It's 8 p.m. Do you know where your podcast hosts are? Yeah. Remember those commercials? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you, you sent me a, a, a list of, quote, juicy topic ideas in an email um, that you want to talk about with us, and uh, we promptly lost your email in the shuffle, and it's just resurfaced, but I wouldn't let Chris look at it. So I think what we're going to do is I'm we're going to do like Jeopardy. Chris is going to pick the category here, and Ike, you're going to jump in with some some crazy audio stuff. I'll take That's, tacos for two hundred, please. It's not it's not I, birthday cake for three hundred. Uh, all right, so um, here we go, Chris. Your categories are things I've learned in one discipline helping me to come up with solutions in other disciplines. How renting into the film sound market helped me sort out challenges on a number of TV shows. When I say me, I'm talking about Ike, of course, because I'm reading his email here. Uh, Frank Zappa-style studio guitar effects done live in 1979. A five-way PA system in 1980. Time-aligning crossover settings and speaker cabinets with a tape measure. Yes, you can wear lav mics in front of the PA. Um, Chris, what's your pick? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, uh, let's let let's start. Yeah. With, we'll start. We'll start with Zappa. Okay. 
Okay. Take it away, Ike. All right. I, I love that response, Chris. It's, I use it with my wife all the time. Honey, do you want to do this or this? Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, Frank Zappa Siles Studio Guitar Facts done live in 1979. I was uh, That was kind of the very beginning of my career. And um, uh, do you guys know what a pig nose is? You ever hear of a pig nose? No. No. Uh, it was kind of the first battery-powered practice guitar amp with like a four inch speaker, maybe a three inch speaker. And, um, I didn't know the details. I didn't know what songs he had used it on, but I was a a Zappa aficionado and I knew that he had recorded some, uh, guitar solos and stuff in the studio using a pig nose as his amplifier, which when you consider that kind of thing of, okay, we're going to build the Marshall stacks in the drum room and then, you know, turn them up to, you know, so loud that nobody can safely go in the room and then run a cable under the door and, you know, all that kind of stuff for him to use uh, a little three inch speaker battery powered amplifier was kind of, kind of radical, you know? So, Anyway, I was mixing this band. We were doing bars, and my uh, uh, I had a, a Yamaha PM700 12-channel console, great little console. And um, one day I just kind of thought, wow, I wonder how I could do something like that. And um, so what I came up with was I had this cheap pair of like, like $6 headphones that I got at Radio Shack, a lot of plastic in them. And... Um, I clamped, I had a, a talkback mic, like a EV635 or something like that, that you could just plug right into the jack on the console. And I, I clamped the headphones over the talkback mic and then soloed the guitar and brought the talkback mic up into the PA. And um, all of a sudden there was this like just wanky little kind of, you know, distorted uh crazy sound that was kind of like what you would have gotten out of like a, a three inch practice amp, you know? <laughs> and, um, and it was great on like uh, one of the songs we were covering, uh, the band was covering was rebel rebel by David Bowie. So, you know, like, and, um, then I discovered that, um, so on the PM 700, there were like four assignment switches for the talk back. Um, was left, right, echo one, echo two. And um, so I discovered that if I assigned it to echo two, which had a, a space echo, which was basically the only effect that we had back then, and put that sound through the space echo, it sounded huge. It sounded like you could take like, you could be in like a, uh, you know, like a, 150 seat bar with low ceilings and push that button and the guitar sounded like it was in you know like the biggest rock guard arena you could imagine and um so that was quite handy for solos and the other thing that was handy for solos was that you know the 70s were kind of the the uh heyday of the punched in guitar solo you know there were there were session guys out in la that would you know just drive around all day in their expensive sports car you know pull into a studio for half an hour burn some incredible solo on somebody's album and then you know get in the car and go to the next one and they you know if you listen to them they sound kind of like they they pop up the solo is amazing and then it's gone right and um what I found was uh, when I 
put this in, you know, when I hit that talk or this, the cue button on the guitar channel, uh, on a solo, the, the guitar would just come like right up, you know, like be like the hugest thing in the room. And then at the end of it, it just, you know, pull my, just, you know, snap my finger off the PFL button and the guitar would just go right back down into the mix, <laughs> right, right to where the fader, you know, the, remember the fader, the fader, there was a fader that right, right to where the fader was. And just, uh, it would just like, boom. So it was like pretty spicy production values for bar bands in 1979. You know? <laughs> and, um, somewhere I still have this, I, I have some cassette tapes with some of this on it, but, and the other thing, which was even, more outside eventually uh, i figured out that this thing would also feed back and i could actually get it to feed like if the guitar player went into a little you know like a feedback thing i could actually capture it and keep it going but um i didn't do that too much because i figured that was kind of stepping on the guitar player's uh, artistic territory a bit you know <laughs> but um yeah so yeah so that's that's that one out of the way that's All awesome. right, back to the board. Back well, to the board, Chris. Well, it, it, it reminded me, uh, not, you, not that you were using uh, headphones as a, as a transducer, but it reminds me back when I was in recording school when I was um, first blown away that, like, that, like you know, uh, headphones can also be used the other way around. Like, they're yeah. still a tra- transducer, right? So, like, we, uh, just for sake of practice, we took headphones um, and plugged them into an input and recorded a B three. Like put it, uh-huh. like put it, put put on a yeah. Leslie cabinet. Like obviously it didn't sound amazing, but it was just a proof of concept of like, hey, this thing is a transducer, just a much bigger diaphragm can go the other way. And I, it was it was kind of cool. So when you you mentioned the whole headphone part of it, that it, it flashback to well, know, it works that, with that any 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 transducer, right? Like I remember um, in the nineteen eighties. Did you ever use any of the QSC A series amps, the A forty two and that kind of thing. They had a lot of connectors on the back. They had like a, like the back sort of was at 90 degrees. So it wasn't like the way, the way they are on most amps where the connectors are sticking out the back. They were actually on a flat part on the bottom sticking up and they had, you know, XLRs and quarter inch. And, and so they had quarter inch inputs and quarter inch outputs, which were kind of right next to each other. And one time I was setting up for a show Uh-oh. and I plugged a, a, an EV, uh, I think it was an S1503 three-way cabinet into what I thought, you know, it was kind of reach around the amp, plug it in. And um, it went into the input instead of the output. So when I turned that amp channel up, I guess there was there was also a speaker on that amp channel. So when I brought that up, it was like instant feedback but big full feedback (laughs) (laughs) righteous feedback yeah yeah anyway so uh yeah that's uh hey um i I was going to mention i've been listening to the the podcast a lot and i've been really really enjoying it so thank you for that's uh, that's all thanks to kyle guys yeah (laughs) well now you can you can you can listen to yourself saying that on the podcast and i bet you'll really enjoy that you know what i I went back and listened to the last one and uh 30 percent of what i said was this uh so i'm really trying to do less of that this time so all right so chris do we need to go back to the board here? Do you have a yeah? What was take notes? You you mentioned you, something about you didn't the take 80s. notes. No, of course not. Um, you mentioned something about the eighties. Some what, what was the five way PA system in nineteen eighty? Yes, let's do that. Okay, 
so probably the third band I worked with, like, you know, back then, you know, you would get hired, uh, on, you know, just sort of the drop of a hat or something like that. You know, it was, it was before cell phones. It was before email. It was before all that stuff. And it, you just it bumped into somebody, this particular band, I got hired because when I was with that other band that I was using that effect with, um, there was a band booked in, in the middle of our week when we were at a club. And, um, I said to the lighting guy, I said, why don't, why don't we, you know, crew for these guys? Um, cause we had, you know, we had to strike our stuff and make room for them to come in do their, their one show on a Wednesday or something like that. And, uh, anyway, uh, we were a great crew and uh, they probably had the fastest loadout they ever had. And, um, you know, I, somehow I gave the, the the sound guy my phone number, and uh, about six months later, he called me up and he was looking for somebody to do this other band that he had done previously. So ended up with that band. But anyway, they would just go, here you go. Every band owned their own sound system, and they were all different, and they were all collections of like whatever the you know they they had come up with, and um, so this particular PA was um, the sub was a trainer bass guitar cabinet that had uh, a, a like a, a rear facing folded horn eighteen, and. Um, these these had been removed, but it was had two eights or tens or something in the front of it, um, and and so it was just it was basically a folded horn eighteen, and then um, and I just saw this come up on on one of your posts today on LinkedIn, Chris. But the uh, the low mid cabinets were forty five sixties, and um, which as far as I've been able to ever able to determine the reason that the JBL 4560 became a very common mid cabinet in that era is because they couldn't reproduce low frequencies and they couldn't reproduce high frequencies. So that was the main qualifier that they had for becoming a mid range cabinet. And, and weren't um, those cabinets more uh, originally? I'm deviating here. Were they voices of the theater? They were, they were cinema speakers, weren't they initially? Or uh, you're thinking of the A7s, which um, which was an Alltech sort of similar design, except the A7 actually could get some bass out of it. Um, but um, anyway, so so there were 4560s for uh, low mid cabinets, but there were also uh, 12 inch. Um, they, they, I, as far as I know, these cabinets never, ever had a name or a number, but they were like basically similar in dimensions to the 4560, except that they had a, a front loaded 12 on a kind of horn, horn loaded, um, I'm making the horn a signal or hand gestures with my hands here, uh, <laughs> on a, on a horn, you know, so 12 loaded, uh, like a horn loaded 12, a couple of those per side. Then uh, a JBL, a big JBL horn. I think it was like a twenty-three fifty. I think the horn, big metal horn, uh, with oh my a Lord. oh man and a bar. Those things. Like uh, I think everybody, <laughs> everybody from that generation has the same hearing loss um, from using those those horns and bars. And then uh, and then um, you know uh, uh, like a piezo tweeter thing, and. 
anyway, I, I look and, and they go, here you go, kind of thing. And it's like, you know, find the cables and, you know, because the last guy's long gone, you know, you, you just, you got to figure it all out. And that was all with um, uh, BGW amplifiers, which, which were quite good. Anyway, I got to looking at this and, and this whole thing of having the 15 inch mid cabinets and the 12 inch mid cabinets just on one output from the crossover and Ashley, um, it just, it really bugged me. I thought that's just not right. And I read somewhere that the um, that the uh, the piezo tweeters didn't really need a crossover because they could they they just couldn't reproduce anything below whatever it was. And so I thought they could just piggyback off the horn output. And uh, so by doing that, I was able to split it so I had. Uh, subs mid bass which is the 4560s uh and then the uh low mids which is the 12s and then the horn and then the tweeters and just kind of carving those things apart uh really gave me uh more control and more ability to tune the system with which you know michael your hair would turn gray and fall out <laughs> instantly if you know if if you saw what we had to uh tune with you know i had a uh an mxr 31 band eq was that was the um that was the uh extent of the eq at the time and the other thing is is when i was tuning it i i figured out that uh and and, we, and this was all with a just a voicing it on a mic but i figured out that i got better results if i tuned each band by itself so I would turn, you know, I would turn off down all the levels on the crossover, turn up the sub and go, <laughs> woof, you know, woof, woof into the mic, get rid of anything that sort of jumped out as being uh, obnoxious, turn the subs off, turn up the mid bass cabinets, do the same thing, turn them off, turn up the low mids, do the same thing, do the horn. And I, you know, I thought, am I fooling myself? But I, I, I tried it both ways a bunch of times and what was happening was that you would hear if you had the whole pa turned on and you did the voicing you would hear overtones of you know say you had a, a 315 kind of thing going on in, in the mid bass cabinets and you would hear overtones of that at like 6 30 or whatever whatever and if you had all of the pa turned on when you had it you might go oh i gotta go and pull that 6 30 slider down but if the 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 mid cabinets were turned off then um the overtone and and you got rid of the fundamental in in the cabinet that was producing it when you went to the next cabinet the overtone wasn't there anymore so it was uh you know <laughs> kind of just learning things by uh figuring out sort of uh jim yak just had a column in in the magazine i think this month about doing that very thing of, you know, learning, learning frequencies by, you know, just trial and error kind of thing. Yeah. Which is by the way, an awesome article. Uh, he made himself a tape. He went into a club and just got a tape recorder and induced feedback for like an hour by boosting a band on a, on a graphic. And then he would say into the tape recorder what the frequency was. And that's what he used for your training. And that's just such an incredible story. Um, I am really like struck by this, idea of like you know in my lifetime 
the field has gone from that state of like, you know, the stuff that Chris is researching now, like let's just create the biggest, craziest, loudest ground stack we can possibly come up with and just murder people to like immense sophistication. And that's happened very quickly. It's been really interesting to watch that shift, you know? Yeah. Two, two things about that. Like um, when I was, I really kind of learned all this stuff kind of on the fly, you know, um, i didn't really have any mentors. I really kind of had to figure this stuff out by myself, but every once in a while, like something would come my way that, that, uh, proved to be tremendously helpful. And, um, my, I have an older brother who's a musician and, and, um, before I moved to Toronto in, in, uh, 79, he would send me stuff occasionally that he just stumbled on or something. And I don't even know how he happened upon this, but he sent me this all tech, um, like a uh you know like a a bulletin or something like that or uh you know like a training document or something like that it's like three or four pages long and the one thing that i got out of that was that it was a really really bad idea to put horns next to each other and that if you needed to stack horns that um or, or if you needed to increase the coverage of horns rather than put them side by side which might seem to be like the the intuitive thing to do is that you would put them on top of each other and splay them and uh you know we know now that that you know putting two say 90 degree horns beside each other you're going to get all kinds of like uh phase uh comb filtering and stuff in between but uh i mean that was practically science fiction back then but the science of splaying stacking them and splaying them instead of putting them side by side and there were so many people that you know they put their pa up and it was the neatest squarest you know there's two of these and then there's two of these and there's two of these and there's two of these and it looked fantastic and it sounded not that fantastic you know so 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 just just stumbling on that one little piece of information of you know how to stack cabinets to increase dispersion and and to uh, minimize you know cancellations and stuff like that was a huge thing to just kind of stumble on when i was like 17 18 years old you know yeah a um, yeah. couple things there on the so that you know the the multiple box uh building to make one box back in the day right um you know before three-way or two-way boxes really even existed uh that it baffles me or or that baffles me just uh um intrigues me um in terms of so at that point did you you probably didn't have any amount of delay compensation with a crossover right it was, it was just crossover so like your delay at that point was just physically moving boxes forward and back were you doing anything with that at the time or was that just not even a relevant concept at the time well, you know, that's a that's an incredible segue into one of the other things that are on the list because um first of all, after I after I got off the road with I was with that band for about a year and then the next gig I had was uh working for uh, a sound company here in Toronto in their manufacturing department and we manufactured two things. One of them was lighting consoles and the other one was four-way electronic crossovers. And, um, and then, and then the company also built their own speakers and all that. So I worked there till the end of 84. And then I went back to that company toward the end of 91 and, um, not uh, a year or two after I came back, uh, one of the account managers said to me, he said, 
hey, I'm trying to sell those big old speakers that we made back when you were here. And, and uh, I got it set up and back and it's got one of your crossovers hooked up to it. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love it if you could go back and, and uh, into the soundstage there and just have a listen and see if it sounds right before these guys from this club get here. So the speakers he was talking about was one of the early three-way cabinets. And it was this Frankenstein thing that was built around an EV Century 4 base cabinet uh, that was, uh, which are about 18 inches deep. And this cabinet was about three feet deep. So they effectively lengthened the horn on the front. And um, then there was a low mid device over that. And then some uh, JBL, uh, newer JBL horn, the first biradial, the 2380, I think, and uh, a tweeter. And, um, somewhere in there, they had uh, yanked the mid devices and replaced it with a couple of baffle mounted 12s. But anyway, I went back and I, I put some program on and I'm listening to this and I go, I don't know, it doesn't sound quite right to me. And I knew the crossovers, like the crossovers had like state of the art electronics, like really good quality capacitors and all this stuff. And I'm listening and go, man, this just this doesn't sound right i go what's going on i go i know it's wrong the sound is not all coming out at the same time <laughs> and this was probably around 1993 or so um and like the yamaha d2040 had been introduced and we had one but frankly i didn't know the box and didn't really have time to learn it i went up front to see what else we had and we had some d1030s which were uh, a one in three out delay with EQ, or if you flicked a switch on the back, it was a, uh, a one in three way crossover with pretty limited, uh, frequency selections, uh, no ability to EQ, um, that because basically the EQ circuitry was used for the crossover filters. Um, but, but you could delay the outputs. And uh, I don't. Have you ever used those boxes? Do you know them? The D ten thirty, or they also called the DDL three. No, I haven't. It you you know that Yamaha sound that people didn't like. Yeah, they 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 kind of had that. They were they worked. They they were never a, a, a tremendously great sounding box. Anyway, so I grab one of those. I take it back to the sound stage. And I punch in the crossover frequencies as close as I can get them. And they're not, they're not right on, but as close as I can get them. And then I took like a yardstick or a tape measure or something because I knew, you know, where the drivers were physically positioned in the box. And here's another important uh, thing. Uh, one foot is approximately one millisecond in, in uh, delay time, right? Yeah. Yep. I and mean, 10? Yeah. 10 feet? Approximately 10 milliseconds. 20 feet? Approximately 20 yeah. milliseconds. So here's the thing. One foot is exactly one foot. And pretty much every delay that I've ever used, if you go into the utility menu, you can go and select uh, uh, parameters and you can have it show you in feet what it's doing. So instead of doing this this um, approximate um, uh, 
conversion all the time of going, well, a foot's approximately a millisecond, two feet. I mean, is 50 feet approximately 50 milliseconds? Like it's got to change somewhere, right? So, but if you, if you set the units to what you're actually measuring in, in this case, feet, then it's going to be exact. So anyway, uh, pet peeve there, rant over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I, I went in and I, you know, measured in inches what the differences were between where the drivers were. And I punched those in uh, into the into the uh, delay slash crossover and turned it on and just about lost my shit. It, the difference was so incredible. And it sounded so much better, even with this mediocre sounding, um, you know, box that I was not excited to use. And it just merely used it to sort of prove the delay concept is the difference in having everything come out of that box at, you know, in time with each other was so incredible. And the other thing that that amazed me was how far up into the low mids it went um, that, that the interference went between the, um, you know, the, the, the bass, the sub speakers and the low mid speakers. Um, it was, you know, you could hear it like around six, 700, you could hear the effect of the speakers interfering with each other because they weren't coming out in time. And, um, you know, I've had this revelation over and over and over again, but I, I say it all the time. Like in this business, timing is literally everything. And and I'm sure that you guys have had this experience, and I'm sure that you know people that say, yeah, you know, when I just, you know, when I actually got the ability to slide microphones around time-wise or, you know, um, you, you know, do that thing or, you know, I got a new, I hear this from my studio clients all the time, you know, Oh, I I got a new clock and, and I can't believe it. Like even recordings I made like two years ago sound so much better, you know, why? Because timing really is everything. (laughs) I mean, that's the old, you know, if you got to go, it's a silly question, but if you got to go tune a system on a desert Island and you can only bring one process, do you bring EQ or delay? If you pick EQ, you get voted out. You know what I mean? Like, like oh, absolutely. You, you got the, yeah. the, the, the delay being wrong will cause issues that you can't fix with EQ. I mean, that's the, I, I if I, if I, I'd rather time a system and leave it without it, without a single filter in. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I have this expression, uh, EQ is phases, time is money. And, and, uh, <laughs> Um, which basically, you know, when you go to EQ something, it's typically because something has got a phase issue and it's typically got a phase issue because it's got a timing issue. And if you waste your time going at it in that direction, then you're basically wasting money. Pun, in, pun so, intended. <laughs> if you waste your you know, time. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. If, if you, if you, um, if you get the timing right, uh, so many of the things that you were reaching for, a, uh, you know, an EQ for just, literally drop away so i wonder if there's there's some yeah i think i i probably think about this more than i care to admit although i'm admitting it right now i guess um no one's listening you're busted you're so i'm super busted the the kind of you know baby's first system tuning when it sort of comes across somebody's radar for the first time they're all about like hey i gotta eq my system like that's the the bit that people focus on and that's like three percent of the work you know and Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because uh, if you're working in audio in any 
form in a studio or live or whatever, like you have exposure to EQ, like it's a tool that we're all familiar with. Um, it, maybe it's more accessible and it's well, more if intuitive. You, if you drive a car, you know, like and there's there's a radio in it. You, you know, you have, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? But like, people think that's, that's a EQ game and it's really not. It's really much, it's all about timing. And it seems like people really focus on just the EQ part. And I always wondered, you know, maybe that's just because we're more familiar with EQ, but that's really missing the boat in a lot of ways. Well, you know, I mean, that could be a generational thing because, you know, again, when I was talking about they tuned in that system in 1980, that's all we had was EQ. Yeah. And, and um, you know, yeah, you could slide cabinets back and forth to a certain extent, <laughs> but, but um, uh, you know, like the cabinets that this company built, uh, you know, the base cabinet was five feet deep. And the mid cabinet was three feet deep. So, you know, to align, to align the drivers, if you put the uh, mid cabinet, you know, back over the, the, uh, the base driver, they'd be in time alignment, but the front lower lip of the horn on the mid cabinet would be blasting into a nice flat shelf of the top of the base cabinet. Right. So, you know, there were all kinds of, of compromises that you, you couldn't work around and, and, um, um yeah so but uh so uh, just back to that thing about um um measure you know delay measurements and that kind of thing uh, i'm a, a big believer in like extreme accuracy and uh so if i had to tune a system and all i had was like one of those laser uh distance range finders thing then i would you know go to the to the whatever the processor was and and can you know go into the menu and put in feet instead of milliseconds to um to do it because and i i think you've probably run into this but you know when you get into tuning on that level um you know the difference between approximately 50 feet you know and and approximately 50 milliseconds versus whatever the actual time actually is can be quite um, you know, it can be quite noticeable. Yeah. I mean, it's, I was actually just talking about that, uh, this morning with my, my dude, Wes, who's one of our fine, uh, participants in the signal to noise podcast mentorship program. So if you interested in that, check it out. It's cool stuff. Anyway, we were talking about, uh, we were doing some subarray stuff and it's really funny. Like as frequency goes up, your margin of error goes way down. You know, you can be two milliseconds off on timing a subarray and it's probably still going to work just like it should. Mm-hmm. Um, two milliseconds off in, in the mid band is, you know, game over, start, start again. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. you, you're multiple cycles off at that point. And so it's just really interesting to think about. Um, I think that's one of the, one of the biggest challenges for kind of getting your mind around all these ideas is that, you know, we have a, you know, a 600 to one ratio of, frequencies and wavelengths that we deal with in the audible spectrum right so like from from 30 to hertz to 18k and so you know anytime you throw out a number like a time value right like anytime you say like well if it's over 20 milliseconds in this like that there there's very few statements for which you can throw out a single time value and it holds for the whole spectrum because it's just not how the physics are so the idea that hey you know yeah i see i know you see this nasty comb filter thing happening on your on your prediction but Okay, you know, change the change the the prediction frequency by half an octave, and guess what? Everything just moved. You know, so like this idea that everything varies with frequency, and it's 
it's that's something that you you know I think it's another one of those sort of non intuitive concepts at first. Yeah, although I think you can go too far down that rabbit hole too. I think that that uh, my thing is t equals d, and you know, and that that um, that the real challenge is figuring out what the actual distance that you're measuring is. Um, in that, um, be, because for example, in the in the example of using like a uh, like a laser. Uh, distance range finder or whatever uh you know i i i'd say take the ike simple challenge sometime go out and try and, <laughs> try and tune try and tune a pa system just using that device and i bet you could but the trick is is that when you measure from say your your uh you know your main hang out to your delays is where are you putting the the um where are you putting the the uh, transmitter on the main box, and where are you measuring what it's hitting on the delay box? You know what I mean? Because just the difference between, for example, measuring from the front edge of the of the main box to the back speaker plate of the delay box would put you out by you know a couple of feet, right? And, um, so it, you know, you'd have to actually, you know, be really tricky and get the, the laser to hit the front of, you know, like the front lower edge of the box or something like that. But, um, I think that's the, the main thing is trying to figure out what distance that you're actually trying to, um, compensate for. Then there's the, uh, oh, go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. You're good. Yeah, I get some I, fun silences going on here. This is I, this is why I, I said there was going to be some some uh, challenging stuff that might come out in the course of this conversation. I was trying to pick an anecdote um, because I, I will mention that that Merlin Van Veen's done a, a really cool. Uh, he has a method called the Absolute Relative Method, I think, and it it involves starting with the coupled, you know, the the main and the sub coupled stacked, and making sure the phase alignment is done there. And then when you then go to go in a venue and your subs are here and your, your mains are up there, then yeah, you, you, he does exactly what you're talking about, which is we know what the alignment is by default. So now let's measure them and whatever that distance offset is, we're going to just do the math and, and put it right in. And so that's, that's exactly, I, I don't think anyone would argue with that because that's, I mean, that's uh, Merlin's had a lot of success with that. Um, I was just thinking um, I, I was in high school and we had to do this gig and it was one of those things where, uh, I was brought, I think it was like some Mackie power three ways and subs from, they were not Mackie. So I don't remember what the subs were, but I was very into this whole idea of, yep, we got to make sure that the front grill is exactly aligned. You know, exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Like, yep. but then I realized like years later, like there is no guarantee that those two boxes were <laughs> playing nicely in the first place. Cause they mm-hmm. weren't even made by the same company. So, so I, I looked well, back on that, that in horror, you know? Yeah, yeah. Not only that, but well, first of all, you got through the gig and you moved, you moved on to where you are now. So, you know, there's, yeah, you, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. But the other thing is, is that, you know, uh, it, aligning the front grills is great, but the, the depth of the box is different right. than, yeah. you know, than, well, uh, you know, so it's kind of what we were talking to, about yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of ways to get it wrong. And I mean, to that same end, I mean, this is, I, I like, believe me, I am not in the world of PA the way you are now. But, um, so I think for example, like people rolling their own, 
um, crossover frequencies and cabinet tunings and stuff uh, is probably something that's pretty much gone away because the manufacturers are are dictating that. But, you know, for example, when I was running this company in the 90s, we had a lot of Adamson inventory, the MH225 and the B218. And we would get riders all the time that said, no Adamson. And the reason we did is because when they came out with their first crossovers, uh, it was a great sounding crossover, and uh, but they hummed like crazy. And actually, the main reason they hummed, and I don't think anybody ever necessarily figured this out was because they had aluminum chassis and uh, if you put them in a rack with the power amps then the transformers and the power amps would (laughs) would induce hum into into the but anyway because people had so much trouble with their crossovers they had to roll their own so they had you know people would use and this is all analog days too so brook siren crossovers uh, tdm crossovers and i'm sure that that people who were touring um you know, front of house guys were just sick of showing up at a venue and, you know, having the tuning du jour of, uh, you know, whatever that company thought was their best guess at, at, you know, how to make an, an Adamson cabinet or Adamson rig sound right. And I had to, um, have some long conversations with people when I was advancing shows going, you know what, we have a Melissa system. We have, you know, timed and EQ'd and all this other stuff, down to, our, and I think you will like our, our Adamson system. And, and generally, you know, we talked them into it and they were happy with it. But I can easily understand where companies that didn't have that resource, you know, those resources were just taking like an off the shelf analog crossover, for example, dialing in a couple of frequencies. And, uh, you know, so every night you could be looking at the same box and it could sound completely different, you know? Well, well I've, I've experienced this firsthand in that. So, like, when I first came on board with MSI around 2004-ish or whatever, uh, this was, like, still uh, somewhat early years of, of Vertec, right? Um, or, or mid-range of, of Vertec. So, like, version 3, version 4 of, of, uh, of presets. Um, and at those times, like, the crossover, you know, they were all unlocked, whether you were on, you know, Macrotex or whether you were on, you know, iTex or whatever. right you could still do your own thing um Uh and so you know that was one of the fundamental shifts that like people were saying like i go to festival one day i hear this gbl rig it sounds amazing i go to uh, you know festival the next day and it sounds completely you know like shit and that's because everybody's like oh well oh i have the the so-and-so crossover setting i have the so-and-so crossover setting and like we're naming people who are like working at msi or at eighth day or you you name whatever company right um and um and so like when Paul Bauman, one of the first things he did when he came to JBL uh, was like from no, Adamson no. actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and and all acoustics before that. Um, but and actually he was at MSI back in the day before that. Anyway, it's a long history there. But wow. Uh, um, he, so he locked he locked the things down. It was like when, when we got version five presets of Vertec, it was like oh okay, this product now sounds consistent no matter where you go. So what I could show up every day, and this is why people you know, companies like Elacoustic and DB from day one had crossover settings locked out. That way, your product is guaranteed. You know, and and I think just about all manufacturers at this point have their stuff locked out to that degree. So yeah, well, actually, and that brings me back to my original point: was if you're doing all that measurement, is if the stuff's not coming out of the box at the right time in relationship to each other, you're already sunk. And since T equals D, there ain't nothing moving around in that box that is different. So that's not really up to people's 
um, you know, to taste or whatever. Right. It's like, <laughs> and, and so getting that th- kind of thing nailed down has been a huge step forward for our industry because there was so much, um, you know, opinion to taste, uh, and, and also based on a lot of kind of shaky knowledge to begin with. So, yeah, but I think um, so much of that was rooted in the fact that, you know, look, this is still a relatively young industry, right? And so it's not, you know, you know, we're only, I would say 20 years into the, the time where you can just buy everything you ever need off the shelf or from a manufacturer, Pre twenty mm-hmm. years ago, which isn't that long ago, you know, and even even shorter than twenty years, people are still making proprietary wedges, proprietary PA, proprietary console. So, like, you know, I think I, th- I feel like some companies, you know, Claire Shoko is, you know, it's like, hey, this is the Shoko sound, this is the MSI sound, this is the so and so sound, and people took pride in that. And mm-hmm. so, I think there was that transition period of like, I don't need a manufacturer to tell me how I want to sound. I've designed, you know, like that. I think that's what played into a lot of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was, you know, again, the company I worked with back in the 90s and well, in the 80s, actually, I mean, we built speakers. I mean, we had a, a the guy that was designing them. It was a pretty brilliant designer. I mean, it's, it's actually it's too bad Kyle's not on this one because I'm sure that he has used many products that were built because there were uh, a couple of clubs here in Toronto that uh, had uh, for years, they had uh, systems that were built by this company that I worked with. And, um, so virtually every band that, you know, came through, uh, particularly these two clubs in Toronto would have used this system from like 1992 to about 2002, 2003 in that 10 year period. And those clubs were like, um, a club rooms. So when we're talking about every band, we're talking about every band that was, was, you know, doing the club circuit, you know, tool, Henry Rollins, you name it, all of them. Right. So they would have all worked on, on, uh, uh, speaker systems that, uh, well at the Phoenix concert theater, they, they worked on, uh, uh, you know, they would have mixed through a couple of electronic crossovers that I built, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so, um, and, and, uh, at the opera house, the, um, the uh, speaker cabinet that was there for a long time was one that I actually um, had solved a, um, a, a kind of design issue with uh, that almost had it sent to the scrap heap. And, and then, you know, had the design written off as unworkable. And then I went, no, nah, this is, this is what's going on with that. And uh, it went on to become a, you know, pretty successful box in our little local ecosystem here in Toronto. So, yeah, I mean, I've, definitely seen that I, I i got a good idea so when you know when the world i don't know comes back um and people can you know see each other in person so you know people always joke about rody olympics right so yeah. what we, we, we should have a build-off of like current modern day system techs and old school system techs right and and the current system techs have to build these hodgepodge you know multi-box level systems you know and but but not with modern day tools or whatever and then and then see how the old guys you know order system techs or whatever come and do their thing and that would be a fun it'd be a fun challenge to see what they have to rack their brain on what fundamentals they have to realize that they take it for granted in the current dsp and processes and stuff that we have now well, well yeah, I, think, I mean, yeah. dude, episode three of this podcast was i think it was episode three it was bernie broderick yeah 
who built. I mean, he took the the. Uh, I think it was the the seven fifty the the EAF. Jeez, e- e- yeah. yeah. <laughs> I need more cake. Um, and uh, and uh, rebuilt it and just did a whole. And he's working on a version too. I mean, that's I love that kind of homebrew. Like, I'm gonna go out in my garage and put these parts together. But I also saw somebody do that rig. <laughs> like when you're talking about everything coming out at the same time, like I saw somebody do an 850 rig, and some of the ways were on analog amps, and some of the ways were on digital amps, and I was like, "Oh, that's 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 not going to go well." <laughs> so you never know, man. <laughs> no rules, no rules. Do whatever no you gate, want. No, gate, no gatekeepers and no rules. I'm that's sure really you will good. not be shocked to hear that did not sound very good. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so okay. what? What was uh? What? You had you had mentioned uh, pre roll not in the um, uh, the email like that there was something you wanted to talk about. Well, uh, I mean, we've been sort of sort of drifting around on it. It's ways of thinking about audio, basically, and um, and uh, I mean, which is you know there are rules, there are laws, the laws of physics, and so on, and then there's interpretations thereof, and and. Um, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, I, I mean, uh, I am extremely self-taught, not really by um, choice so much as circumstance. And um, so a lot of times I've kind of had to figure out my own way to do things. And sometimes it's, it's kind of intensely unpopular. Uh, you know, in fact, I was listening to one of the podcasts with Ryan John, the second one, and he was talking about getting kicked off some chat groups because of, of, uh, opinions that he, that he was, of you know, how to, it was something about like delaying overheads or something like that. And, and I thought, this is a guy that I could really relate to. I like, I like this guy. I like the idea of getting kicked off of a, of a, a chat group because people don't, just can't get their head around your ideas, you know? And, um, to that end, I mean, that kind of ties into a couple of things that were on the list is one of which was, um, uh, the, uh, creative use of feedback controllers. Uh, and the other one is why I hang trap boxes horn down. And, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the age old question, you know, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? Well, in our industry, if that man is carrying a feedback controller or even thinking about one, then the general consensus is that you can't call him a man. You know? <laughs> but, um, but you know, into the other, uh, uh, the other thing that was on the list is, is it possible to have people wearing lav mics in front of the PA system? Uh, the answer is, with creative uh, and, and possibly totally out of control use of, of feedback controllers. One particular model, which I'll get to in a minute. Hold on, um, R- it real is. quick. Uh, yes, it's possible because in anyone who does corporate knows that it happens every freaking day because you don't get to choose where your speakers go often. So <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, that's yes, I'm, and, and unequivocally yes. <laughs> when we talked about this, we sort of touched on this the last time I was. I think it was in the pre-roll or the post-roll after the last time I was on, and you actually said, "Well, you know, if, if you design your system properly, then you don't have to worry about that or something." And I went, "Well." I thought about it afterwards and I thought, 
design it properly for what? Like if it's like, well, I, no, I, all right, let me, I want to hone in right there. No, no, no. That's, that's a very good point. So, you know, since I deal with a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say deal with work with a lot of uh, freelancers who, who, <laughs> um, who, you know, I hire to do my shows, um, you know, and some of these shows, right. We have elaborate vector works designs where I've designed the system and plan things out. Right. And other ones, it's like, look, dude, you got four speakers on sticks, you know, two mains, two delays or whatever front fills, figure it out it's a ballroom right you know yeah. and and some people try to go to the nth degree and like hey do you think i should do this i think i do this hey i, I want to get this here and i'm doing like this ease modeling for it i'm like look dude like this is you know in the corporate world you know unfortunately You're already late well <laughs> well no but un- unfortunately often aesthetic is going to outweigh proper placement for you know uh, a time alignment and um uh, you know uh evenness across the room right so yeah. you know your your game before feedback and aesthetic have to find somewhere a middle ground of you know yes optimal place isn't far out and far left however you have screens butted up against the stage right and so knowing that when I, so when i say properly designed it's like i'm properly designing for game before feedback not necessarily the best stereo field experience right yeah. so th- yeah. th- that context yeah, but what I'm talking, and I know, and that means, you know, the speakers go here and, and the speaker speaking goes at the, the lectern goes here or the, you know, the pastor goes up here and the people go are, you know, sit in the pews down there or whatever. And I'm talking about something that's miles beyond that. I did a lot of, of television in the late 90s, early 2000s, and um, there were uh, one of the shows was supposed to be kind of like a dance party kind of thing. And the host was on the floor with the audience the whole time. And so he was in front of the PA the whole time. And um, his mic was a Sony ECM 77 lav mic uh, on his chest, right, right on his sternum. Basically we had uh, wardrobe made these, uh, uh, you know, singlet undershirts with a little, uh, piece of elastic with a little just a tiny little loop in it and you would just sort of force the the uh, 77 under there and uh i mean it sounds amazing and and the pa was like uh you know like it was it was set for you know uh zero view on the console is like 85 90 db in the room and the way i was able to do that was was a couple of things one i was using a sure dfr 22 feedback controller which is an amazing box um, and, uh, two, um, again, because of the way I hung the cabinets with the, uh, the horns facing down instead of facing up, like, you know, where's the pattern control in a, in a two-way trap box? Um, it's only in the horn. That's the only place you have pattern control because a baffle mounted 12 or whatever doesn't have any, right? Mm-hmm. So by, hanging them horn down and pointing them right at the people i'm making pointing gestures with my hands here uh, you know pointing them right at the people um so it's exactly where you want the sound to go uh it, it makes a huge difference uh i've done it in, in a church install i uh routinely did it in all of my television installs and um among other things it allows you to get um close to the front edge of the stage in a, in a good way. I mean, you know, basically you're going to have to pull that box back because they're not long throw boxes anyway. Right. So you're, you're going to be tilting it and, 
if you have it hung the way it shows up in the factory catalog in the showroom with the with the 12 on the bottom, then you're pulling that 12 and all of its what I call fwaba, that spare tire of frequency that that's you know low mid junk that that is around the whole cabinet you're pulling that back into the area that you really want to keep that out of and if you have the box inverted you can have the horn basically like literally cut the first row of seats or the front edge of the stage or whatever you want and because the the low frequency driver is kind of up further up into the grid and stuff i find that that stuff tends to dissipate and doesn't get all up in your in your lav mic business but Back to the feedback controllers for a minute. Um, I would um, basically, and Michael and I had a, a talk about this just privately one time too, is the the feedback is incredibly, incredibly narrow spikes there. And, and the, uh, the Shure DFR, um, the, I believe the default uh, bandwidth is 140th of an octave. So when it goes after a frequency, it's taken out one fortieth of an octave notch, which is pretty freaking narrow. I think Michael did the math and said what the Q was and all that stuff. And uh, the thing is, is that you can go and you can take quite a few of those out and not affect the sound and um, in a bad way. <laughs> and um uh, so many people that I've tried to have this conversation with have been just really, really um, just unreceptive, let's say. And, um, uh, and, and that, that, that kind of baffles me, you know, like is, uh, but um, the one issue with those boxes right now is that they're analog in and out. And because all mixers are digital these days, it means, you know, another, uh, conversion in and out just to use one. And, uh, I keep hearing rumors that, you know, Yamaha or somebody is going to have, you know, add that algorithm to the, you know, to the internal effects rack or whatever of this mixer or that mixer, but I don't think it's happened yet. And it's too bad because, um, when those things are used effectively, uh, they can do, uh, incredible things. And, and, and uh, the pinnacle of what I managed to do with it was, uh, uh, and on this uh, variety TV variety show we did, we did a, an act called Job the Hip Hop Saga. So it's two actors rapping accompanied by a live band. Um, and they are uh, out in the house uh, in front of the PA. The PA is like 90 dB in the house. And they were on lav mics, which were uh, on their foreheads under their do-rags. And, um, I, I was actually going to try and send you guys, uh, um, I have some of this, unfortunately I don't have video of any of it, but I have audio uh, clips of it. I was going to try and send you guys some of this stuff, but I'm not that technologically advanced to be able to figure <laughs> out how to do that. But, but I mean, that's, that's how extreme I'm talking about. So I'm saying, you know, forget about, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. It's like, let's figure out how you can do this. And, you know, to that end, I mean, <clears throat> personally, you know, if I go to the theater or something like that, uh, it really bugs me when I see people with headset mics on and, um, you know, to, because I think it really detracts from the, you know, suspension of disbelief experience and all that other stuff. And because I know, because I've done it, 
that you can do things with with lav mics and hidden lav mics that you know would just blow your mind if if you saw them that i think that uh you know i wish i wish more people were a bit more receptive to this to this idea so i as in as we're getting kind of closer to the hour here and stuff i have a i have a closing thought or question to you know we've talked a lot of technical talk i'm curious you've had a long career uh you've done a lot of different things everything from manufacturers to making your own gear and whatnot what um looking back what has given you the most sense of satisfaction on your career uh, or is there a moment there's an overarching thing when you look back what what um what satisfies you the most well this uh the second show that i was talking about the toronto show uh i, I had some um <clears throat> I, I had some moments on that show where i was like man this is like really really great i remember one day in particular um, after I, I ended up taking over the audio supervisor role after a few weeks in because they, they, it just wasn't going the way it should be. And, and uh, I, somebody kind of got wind of the fact that I had done this kind of thing before in another show that had run for like five years and that kind of thing. And say, hey, can you help us out? And I said, yeah. But anyway, one day I, I came back down into the studio while we were rehearsing from uh, having been up at a meeting in the production offices. And I came in and there was just sound. You, there was a band rehearsing. They were, they were uh, going over the blocking of some camera moves on something else. And, and it, was like, it was like the PA system had just virtually disappeared. You could hear everything you needed to hear, um, the, but it was like, the PA wasn't calling attention to itself. And, and in fact, I mean, that's my, um, <clears throat> let me ask you guys something. Do you guys have like some show or some sonic experience that you had where you went, or, you know, that when you are tuning a system or when you are setting things up, that you're trying to emulate that, that you're trying to get something to be that good. Hmm. I, I, We'll say I have a couple of recordings that I know how I want them to sound, but I don't, I wouldn't say I'm trying to emulate another system that I heard necessarily as a goal. I, I don't well, think let, that would be let, fair. Let me tell you what mine is. Okay. Um, so my parents were kind of back to the landers and we ended up moving from New York state to Prince Edward Island, which is the smallest uh, province in Canada and sort of accidentally becoming farmers in the 1970s. And we, you know, my brother was a musician and we knew people that were musicians. And uh, one day this uh, trio was out, came out to visit and they were standing in our laneway, uh, six string, 12 string, female vocal, no sound system, no microphones, nothing. And that is what I am trying to emulate when I'm setting up a sound system and when I'm timing and tuning a room and when I'm, you know, uh, do it is uh, I am trying to make it sound like there is no sound system there at all. You can hear everything. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's the natural transmission model. Yeah. Um, I think, and, 
<laughs> next week on the Signal to Noise podcast, no microphones. We'll let you guys know how it goes. <laughs> no, but the thing is, the thing is, 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 and, and you know, it's a funny thing. I was listening to another one. Uh, I think it was Dave Morgan, and he was talking about that you're that you're working with people, that you're working with humans, and it's humans entertaining humans, and the sound system is a link in that chain, but it should never be. A, you know, uh, a noticeable link in that chain, in my opinion, it should be when you look up at the stage uh, and you, you know, you see hear James Taylor, or whoever's up there is that's, it's just you and them. And it's not like, Oh yeah. And I hear the voice coming down from, you know, 50 feet up in the air over on that side and over on that side and all that other thing. This is, I think the greatest thing that we can do is as sound technicians is to make the sound system disappear. Yeah, trans- you know, trans- that, that whole thing of, you know, nobody went home humming the lights. Well, I really, I think that, um, you know, nobody should go home humming the sound system either, you know. It should be like they should uh, essentially have been completely unaware of the fact that it was there. You know, not like, man, that was a great sounding system, but it was like, I heard my favorite artists tonight and they were amazing. Yeah. So. Well, there you go. Well, I think that's a that's a good solid hour of thought provoking war stories. So, Ike, thank you, man. <laughs> and if you uh, haven't noticed, welcome. Ike is one of our biggest fans. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he definitely contributed to getting us to that you know hundred hundred thousand plus. Hey, you know what? You said Kyle and his mom was fifty thousand. Well, I was the other fifty thousand. <laughs> there we so, go, man. You know, like well, now yeah. we know who to sell and, the t shirts to. I guess, and then I guess maybe a couple other people might have listened, but uh, yeah. Anyway, guys, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and, and uh, uh, you know, spout this uh, this stuff, you know, and uh, uh, and and I just, again, I appreciate so much what you guys are doing for the business, and and uh, it's just a, this is a great resource. Yeah.